Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, my name is Roy Taylor and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airways. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne and we are streamed live by the 3CR website. And recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website, that's 3cr.org.au. And also the Freedom of Species website, that's freedomofspecies.org, and all previous podcasts are also available on iTunes. And I would like to thank everyone for the pledge to the 3CR Freedom of Species Radiothon. Donations are still coming in, and if you have made a pledge and haven't yet contributed, please call in and make your donation. The number to call, this is during the week, is Melbourne 03 9419 That's 9419 Just call in, you can make your donation, or you can come to the 3CR office itself during the week and make your donation to the 3CR Radiothon. And please specify, if you are doing so, that your donation is in support of Freedom of Species. And it's so important to support 3CR because it is the alternative voice in the media that will cover issues such as animal advocacy. And for today's show, we're going to be listening to a talk given at a recent Animal Justice Party seminar by a vegan veterinarian and expert on the fallacies of vivisection, Dr. Andrew Knight. From remote communities to the big cities and representative of our many different voices, cultures, languages and beliefs, Community Radio is the voice of local communities. But this voice is being threatened. The recent federal budget has reduced funding for Community Digital Radio, a move that puts all Community Digital Radio services at risk. Show your support for live and local voices by signing the petition at keepcommunityradio.org.au. Help keep the community in your radio. So we'll go to that talk by Andrew Knight. Andrew is introduced by Bruce Poon of the Animal Justice Party. He's a vet and most notably in the last couple of decades an author. So writing about ethics and animal experimentation. Many of you might know him from his recent book, The Costs and Benefits of Animal Experiments, which was a bit of promotion for here in the last couple of years. I mean, before that, you know, he worked very hard on some of the campaigns like halting the live export trade, which, you know, we're still working on. And uh, for me, you know, his interest in animal agriculture and climate change is going to be very interesting. Uh, I've got some questions about that later, maybe. Um, and uh, so anyway, you'll probably hear from the man himself, so, so I'll shut up. Uh, welcome, Dr. Andrew Knight. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks, thanks uh, very much indeed all for coming. So I haven't been given any specific brief as to uh, what to speak about today, um, and I do, do speak on a range of topics, so I wasn't asked to speak on anything in particular, so I'm going to seize that opportunity and just talk about things that uh, I've, I've found interesting and perhaps a bit entertaining. I want to talk a little bit about the story of how I got to where I am today, actually, which is at the University of Winchester uh, in the UK, setting up a new centre of animal welfare also try to encourage people to um, consider uh, becoming professional animal advocates uh, in a sense and also talk a bit about uh, the course we're setting up. We're setting up a distance learning master's course in animal welfare which uh, some people might also be interested in Uh, and I will mention some of the other issues perhaps that Bruce uh, spoke about as well. So obviously I started off in Perth. This is this is Perth, beautiful city, lovely wide river for anyone hasn't been there, been there yet. 
Unfortunately, of course, Perth has a much darker side. There's some pictures, perhaps it's best that you can't see. That's the live uh, sheep trade in action. Uh, Perth, of course, is the world capital of the live sheep trade. Very big issue in Europe, uh, some other countries, but of course in Perth it's, it's the world capital. The sea voyage there is two and a half weeks. The uh, sheep are shipped uh, up to five million uh, was, was the figure in sort of the mid-1990s when I got involved in it. Five million sheep being shipped on a sea voyage of two and a half weeks to the Middle East. Um, the conditions on board ships were so bad, there a lot of crowding conveyed this sheep here being is completely covered in feces from uh, the upper decks washing down onto the lower decks. They don't get clean until all the sheep are off-boarded at the end. Uh, they often don't uh, do very well because they're not used to eating the pelletised uh, diets, so they suffer from inanition, which is failure to eat, which results in starvation um, because it can be very hot in the tropics. Uh, they pass through ventilation systems can be an issue. Uh, up to 250,000 sheep a year uh, were dying actually on, on, on the sea voyage and a similar number uh, on arrival in feedlots uh, at the far end, often lack of shade, lack of uh, decent facilities in the feedlots. Uh, the ones that survive might be tossed into car booths and taken to people's private homes for uh, ritual religious slaughter, uh, for certain religious ceremonies or um, slaughtered in slaughterhouses where the conditions are nothing like the relatively modern, more controlled, perhaps more humane conditions that do occur in, in Australia and other uh, well-developed nations. So, huge animal welfare issue. Um, most of those sheep were being shipped from Fremantle. I was living in Perth. Fremantle's a port city, of course. So, uh, I got very much involved in, in this campaign back in the mid-1990s. I basically spent a year uh, full-time working on the live sheep trade campaign and I had a bit of an epiphany. I found it was so satisfying and rewarding personally to be trying to do something that made a difference to such really large numbers of sentient creatures. I started to wonder you know, how, how could I find a career uh, in sort of animal advocacy and, and do this for the rest of my, my days, really. So... Um, as part of that process, um, at the time, there were some really massive protests going on. There were some great television exposés. I know there have been more since uh, I left Australia in 2001 and some really prime-time TV coverage, which has been fantastic. Um, back, back when I was doing this, there was one of these sheep carriers uh, called Fire and Sank, killing all sheep on board. Uh, I think it was about 70,000 sheep. We had uh, really enormous protests through the, the uh, city of Perth uh, back around that time following the sinking of that ship. So lots of media coverage and very big uh, protests going on. Uh, I was giving lots of interviews, actually, um, a lot of uh, radio interviews, um, lots of uh, newspaper coverage, very occasionally on TV. And I was, I was in these studios, and people would go, OK, so tell us about the live sheep trade, what's the problem? So I'd rattle off all these facts and figures. And then someone would go, OK, mm, and, and what do you do for a job? And I would say, well, I'd have to say I deliver pizzas, I deliver newspapers, or I deliver patients to and from hospital and radiation treatment centre where I was working as an orderly. And I started to dawn on me in my sort of early 20s that people were judging the merits of the arguments and the facts and figures that I was putting forward on the basis that I delivered pizzas and I delivered newspapers. And I started to appreciate the value, really, of getting uh, more uh, specialised uh, qualifications, knowledge... Um, and, and started to wonder what I could do to, to try to have a greater impact uh, for, for animals. So I considered a number of careers. Um, obviously, being a, a rock star and a movie star is, is always the best thing that anyone, anyone can do for animals, clearly. Um, so I, I did, uh, at that time, or even earlier, actually, grow my hair long. But very sadly, uh, a number of auditions in the shower have convince me and anyone unfortunate enough to be within earshot that I have no uh, ability whatsoever to do anything like that. So I was forced on a plan B, which is these sorts of things. I was thinking about you know, careers such as medicine, nutrition, dietetics, law, education, veterinary medicine. What, what strategically is likely to be most useful in advancing animal advocacy uh, campaigns and what, you know, what can put you in the best position to do that? There's other really important skills that I think the animal rights movement um, needs more of, things like uh, more photo photography, videography, social media obviously is uh, becoming ever, ever increasingly important. We're learning the value of shorter and shorter videos and video sharing and doing things like that. Graphic web design, IT, fundraising, marketing, business management and so on. These are the sorts of skills that the organisations and the campaigns need. Um, 
obviously I considered the various reasons for doing these. Um, certainly in the first group, uh, specialised uh, expertise, qualifications, more credibility with decision makers, legislators, media scientists, consumers and so on, specialised skills and knowledge about, about the issues. Money for campaigning, I ended up going to veterinary school when I was uh, running a really big campaign for humane teaching methods in, in veterinary curricula. Um, I was trying to do mass mail-outs and scrabbling around for uh, money to, to pay for postage stamps and running an office underneath my bed um, with a whole bunch of filing files that I would keep there and do that kind of thing. And I, I really uh, wanted in the future to be in some position where I wasn't scrabbling around for postage stamps and trying to run campaigns on a shoestring like that. Um, getting a professional qualification gives you increased ability to you know, choose which, which campaigns you work on and uh, if you're working on, I think, in, as a lawyer or some other professional, uh, hopefully you'll be in a more professional working environment. You'll have um, satisfaction of hopefully doing some good in, in your day-to-day role. And certainly as a veterinarian, um, I was just dying for somebody in a radio studio to ask me, so what do you do for a living? You know, to be able to say that you actually are doing something worthwhile in your day-to-day job as well as the campaign on the side uh, was very much part of, of my thinking as well. And the ability to travel was something really important uh, to me, uh, whether for uh, animal advocacy campaign reasons or for pure personal self-interest. I'll come back to that as well later on. So um, I ended up deciding for these sorts of reasons to try to get into the veterinary course and put myself through a lot of pain academically for a year or so until I managed to get into the course uh, in Western Australia. I went through the course. There was a huge campaign to... Um, learn without uh, harming and killing animals in the curriculum. Um, traditionally animals have been uh, harmed in veterinary curriculum in two ways. Um, at the preclinical level in subjects like physiology, anatomy, biochemistry, there might be dissections of purpose-killed animals or experiments on living animals to demonstrate well-established uh, scientific principles, been established for decades typically and they just want to demonstrate those. And then the second level is at the clinical and surgical level. People will have traditionally learned surgical procedures by practising them on uh, healthy animals, which are then killed at the end of the procedure. So that's the way it's traditionally been done. So when I was a veterinary student from 1997 to 2001 at Murdoch University in Perth, uh, we had really big campaigns to get rid of that, bring in humane alternatives, which we did successfully. Uh, an alternative surgical program was a key part of that um, involving sterilising animals from animal shelters typically and making them available for adoption, um, providing hopefully useful service in that way and also um, you know, gaining that surgical experience under one-to-one supervision as well. That was part of it. We also set up uh, a conscientious objection policy at the university so students then have the right to um, a voice, a consciously held objection to something they're teaching or assessment. The university uh, agreed to make reasonable efforts to provide alternatives of comparable difficulty uh, if the objection was truly genuine and uh, they were able to look into that uh, accordingly. So that spread to a couple of other universities in Australia and uh, a few overseas as well. So that was, that was veterinary school. Uh, I got out of veterinary school. Um, that is a very large tumour actually on a dog and that's me. Um, about to take it off um, and that's that's me working as a veterinarian. Uh, I went to uh, London, uh, UK um, many many Australian veterinarians do uh, go to the UK um, I guess often to see Europe and then after a couple of years of the weather they all tend to come back <laughs> and here I am as well uh, sadly only temporarily unfortunately but anyway um, so I was spent a lot of time working as a locum veterinarian, which means somebody who you know, works temporarily when uh, permanent staff are off on sick leave or holidays. Uh, so I, I travelled around many different practices and did many temporary jobs. This was great because it gave me the opportunity to, to research uh, into animal experimentation and do some research uh, projects of my own, collaborate with some other people and publish the results. So um, somehow... Um, this just seemed to snowball and I seemed to do more and more of these things and um, I ended up doing enough to actually get a PhD by publication in this area and also produce the book that Bruce Connolly mentioned before. Um, so essentially what, what I would do would be look at the contribution of the, uh, invasive animal research that's published in the scientific literature, <coughs> how much that's actually contributed to human healthcare advancements Know, critically scrutinise those claims that are so often made about the value of this research based upon how much is it actually used in publications describing new medical treatments and things like that in certain fields of healthcare. 
and then also a really big look at what are the alternatives that are available um, and also the same sort of thing with respect to animal use in education what's the animal use, what's the alternatives, what's the evidence about which method produces which outcomes for students in terms of gaining surgical skill or knowledge of a subject and so on so that's the sort of thing I do um, certainly worked also with uh, uh, Humane Research Australia, Helen from Humane Research at the back there, she was kind enough to ask me to come over here actually a couple of years ago and, and film uh, um, a, a, little, a little film about some of this work so I think some, that's probably still on your website somewhere mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so, so I did that um, then I got to travel, went to lots of conferences presenting uh, some of this work which was great fun um, I was asked to be an electoral candidate for Animals Count, now the Animal Welfare Party in the United Kingdom, uh, certainly in 2015, and the highlight of that, I have to say, was wearing full-size uh, fox costume and standing on uh, the London streets because fox hunting is a big issue and we tried to make it a political issue as well uh, in the United Kingdom in association with the elections. Uh, getting hugged by complete strangers who wanted to be photographed <laughs> with the fox. So, so that, was, that, was, that was a highlight. And we actually did surprisingly well. Um, um, it was a nice fox costume. I don't have it, unfortunately, anymore. But, um, yeah, we did, we did well. I was, I was pleased with the outcome. What's that? Pierce Mo- Yes, I had an endorsement from some major um, media personality over there, and I proudly went told many people I'd been endorsed. He published a big blog in Guardian or, or whatever it was. So I'm going to vote for Andrew um, in Kensington. And I then found out that Piers Morgan is considered a bit of a laughing stock by many other sectors of UK society. It wasn't necessarily something I should have been proud of <laughs> after all, but I didn't know that before I told everybody. Um, <laughs> thank you. It's me. Pointing that out. Appreciate that. Uh, um, right, so I made several websites on the various issues that um, I campaign on, have an interest in. This one is animalexperiments.info. I'll just mention these sites. Again, you, you can't really read this probably, but there are, basically it's just published studies in the scientific literature and governmental reports. So I try to make it as all as credible as possible. There are, uh, you know, with the best will in the world. Uh, I know that sometimes the reports of animal protection organisations won't be considered seriously by some sects of society. I don't include those. It's just peer-reviewed scientific uh, reports and uh, governmental reports as well. Look at uh, the numbers of animals used in various regions of the world, uh, the impacts that the animals experience uh, because of the procedures and the environments that uh, they are in. Uh, What are the actual benefits to human healthcare? What does the evidence actually tell us? How often does this research translate into useful outcomes for human patients in various fields? What are the alternatives? Use of animals in education. So that's all there along with a series of short summary articles as well for people that don't want to wade wade through very long uh, papers about cell cultures or things like that. Uh, I've got a website on... uh, It's called humanelearning.info as well for really for resources for students and academics who want to campaign for humane teaching methods in various curricula and life and health sciences education. Another one is uh, veggiepets.info if anyone's interested in the issue of meat-based diets and vegan diets, vegetarian diets for companion animals, what are the health and nutrition aspects associated with each of those. If you are interested in trying to transition animals onto vegetarian and vegan diets, what you need to be concerned about health-wise, how can you safeguard health, and how natural is that, how natural does it compare to uh, what animals are fed commercially anyway these days. Um, so that's all on, on that one as well. Lawrence Pope, Victorian Advocates for Animals. You know, it doesn't matter where I am, around Australia or across the globe, people ask me the same question. Why don't we have programs like 3CR's Freedom of Species? Why don't we have independent radio? Not radio that's a puppet of the millionaires and the billionaires, but radio that reflects the real concerns of people like you, the very salt of this great country, from Warrnambool to Wonthaggy, from Malakuta to Cootamundra, 3CR, they're kind of cats, they're for the bats, that's independent radio, that's freedom of species, not the enslavement of species, I said the freedom of species. You know what to do, donate to independent radio and warm your heart while you're cooling the planet. This is Lawrence Pope for Victorian Advocates for Animals and 3CR, wishing your species all the best. So I, I got to do all this um, stuff and it was, was very rewarding. Um, and so I, you know, part of my presentation really is to encourage people to consider uh, 
professional careers really in animal advocacy and think about strategically what will do the most good for the campaigns, what's most realistic for you, um, that sort of thing. Why should you become a professional animal advocate? Well, you know, very importantly, um, because you'll never have to you know, do any work. Um, <laughs> you just get to travel around the world. You get to go to wonderful conferences, meet fun people, go to fancy dress parties, um, eat gourmet ve- uh, vegetarian vegan food, go to very fun actions and events. Uh, this is a sign about a turkey shoot, um, which is on Saturday islands just off Vancouver. Lovely place, gorgeous forests, hills. Has anyone been to Vancouver? Have you guys done any tours of the islands? Just off? Right, one of those islands, beautiful, beautiful islands, lovely forest, wild coastline, pretty cold place. You know, all, every single turkey shoot sign on this island somehow mysteriously disappeared. Um, <laughs> What's that? Yeah, do you doing this time? Uh, you know, it's like we go to places, places looking for these signs, and they just kept on disappearing. Anyway, so so you get to participate in fun actions and events. What's that? Do they have excess firewood? I don't know about the firewood actually. Um, I guess they do now. Um, all right, funner events. Has anyone heard of the, the running of that NIMS event in Pamplona? Yeah. Uh, so Peter, uh, London, used to organise a massive protest in Pamplona, the heart of bullfighting capital in... Um, the heart of the bullfighting country in Spain. So initially they had a naked protest where they had about 30 people run through the streets uh, the same route that the bulls would run through on their way to the bull ring before getting killed in a public spectacle. The town council thought this was you know, very not what they wanted in the town. The lawyers got involved, the compromises reached, activists then had to wear um, modestly, um, modest bits of clothing in various places. Somehow this event grew, and when I actually went, actually, um, there was about a thousand activists coming from all over Europe, from there were buses coming from countries all across Europe, and ended up being just some massive festival for animal rights activists. There was, you wandered through this huge camp on the outskirts of Tampona, which was sympathetic to the cause, and they'd made the campground available for free. There'd be all, every late European language going on. There'd be talks about all sorts of interesting issues back in, back in the place. There'd be tours through the old town, and then there was the actual day itself, and there would be bands, and people would uh, all... all be given plastic pawns to wear and put on tattoos in Spanish that said things like uh, torero, toros si, toreros no which is, which is bulls yes, bullfighters no and uh, everyone would basically dance through the streets and have, have this wonderful time so, and, and then a short after that it all got shut down completely I guess it was considered you know, very politically incorrect and you know, this is not really the way that um, our bullfighting should be opposed um, there was too much attention on the activists and not enough on the actual issue and so on, so it got shut down but it was certainly a major social occasion while it was going on so, so yeah, as I say, if you become you know, a, a um, professional animal advocate you get to go to fun events if you want you can go to castles mountains, beaches yes Well, um, in, I mean, I mean, it, it is declining. It is declining. Uh, the bullfighting industry is trying to uh, push back against this. I think it's declining more because it's a generational thing. The culture is changing. It's no longer seen as, as acceptable as it used to be. Uh, it's starting to become banned in, in some regions. Uh, but it's still, it's still substantial, and it's not going to go away probably for, I'd, I'd say, another generation perhaps. But it's on the way up. So lovely beaches, so there you go. So what are you waiting for? You should all hopefully be inspired, I'm hoping, and want to become professional animal advocates. So if you do want to do that, how do you do it? Well, one way you, you can do it is come here. And sadly, you can't see that too well, but, but that's Winchester where I, I currently am. Um, this dark mass here is the most longest cathedral. That's an open-air ice rink. It's an incredibly historic, beautiful, medieval city in England used to be the capital of the country. There's also a very progressive university there where um, they have decided to establish a centre for animal welfare and that's what I'm actually doing there at the moment. I'm helping to establish that centre at the University of Winchester. Why has the university 
um, decided to establish the Centre for Animal Welfare, you may ask. And I think this is part of uh, a trend that's been going really since the 1960s, 1970s in society at large. We have uh, an increasing wealth of studies in fields like animal behaviour, uh, animal cognition, uh, showing us that animals have uh, capacities, communicative abilities, social characteristics very often, various cognitive capacities, uh, much more than we uh, previously appreciated in a wider range of species and to a greater degree than often we ever appreciated before. At the same time, animals are being uh, increasingly intensively farmed, uh, used in laboratories, and there are increasing concerns about the way these animals are housed and treated. So as a result of that, we've seen, um, certainly in the United Kingdom, things like the Hunting Act 2004 has been recently passed, Animal Welfare Act 2006, so they banned hunting with dogs and placed, placed a positive duty of care on animal owners, not just prevention of cruelty to animals, but rather positive duty to provide for their basic needs in a range of ways, whether it be diet, environment, um, exercise, social interaction, veterinary care and so on. So that's the way legislation's going now in, in various regions of the world. It's no longer just outlawing overt cruelty, but there's, there's a, a positive duty upon owners as, as well. Legislation in various US states outlawing some of the most egregious intensive farming practice practices, that's, that's happening in, in a lot of states. Food corporations, they are, as part of their corporate social responsibility, they're increasingly implementing policies uh, are requiring animal welfare standards of their suppliers. Veterinary conferences and specialisations, there have been a number of these conferences, major conferences in the veterinary world in the last few years on animal welfare topics, which is really great because previously the veterinary profession hasn't been very involved in animal welfare until, until quite recently, not, not in a sort of a, a bigger, overt, more leading kind of a way. Uh, specialisations, they've established veterinary specialisations in animal welfare in the whole of Europe and the US in the last five years. It's always been that way in Australia for much longer than that, but uh, those two major regions of the world just recently, which is really good. New academic disciplines. We've seen uh, the rise of all sorts of academic disciplines spring up uh, with names like anthrozoology, uh, critical animal studies, biopolitics, posthumanism, and, and so on. Um, animal law has exploded. Um, there are over 150 uh, law schools in North America and at least 11 in Australia and New Zealand now offering courses in animal law. A couple of decades ago there's probably about one, so that, that's a really big explosion going on there as well. Uh, there have been uh, new, new journals uh, dedicated to animal welfare and animal ethics, new academic journals have appeared, uh, books and book series uh, have appeared, new professorial posts and academic centres for animal welfare. This gentleman, uh, that uh, picture there is, is Don Broom. He was the first professor of animal welfare and he started at Cambridge in 1986. Um, he published an article in 2005 surveying the global scene and he said at that time, 2005, there were 19 professors of animal welfare in the world. Um, he said there's at least 45 other active scientists teaching and, and uh, researching and so on in the field. He, he listed 31 of these people and 21 out of 31 had just been appointed in, in the last decade. The others had been appointed in the two decades prior to that. So the field's kind of taking off. It's starting to climb quite quickly. Within Australia, um, there are already some academic centres for animal welfare. There's, in 1997, the Animal Welfare Science Centre was created as a joint collaboration between the University of Melbourne, Monash and Victorian Department of Primary Industries. In 2005, we had the Centre for Animal Welfare and Ethics at the University of Queensland Veterinary School, set up by Clive Phillips. Um, in the US, a couple of famous examples, the Centre for Animals and Public Policy at Tufts University and the University of California Davis Centre for Animal Welfare. There's probably 20 to 30 of these uh, academic centres now in the world, and most of them have been created just recently. Hmm? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Um, I mean, indeed, that's the point I made when I was a veterinary student. I mean, the university claimed to be uh, very animal welfare friendly, or particularly the veterinary school did, but I said, well, hang on, there's all this uh, harmful animal use going on in the teaching and the research, so this is uh, not uh, consistent at all. And they, they did not like that one bit when, when that point was made in the, the national press. Um, 
but but yes, uh, so that's that's still going. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's, it can sometimes be. I think that because there is all that going on, uh, they have an increased interest in bringing on academics that uh, are good on animal welfare and ethics, setting up centres that are good on animal welfare and ethics, because then they can say to the wider public, well, look, uh, we, we have taken these steps, so we, we do care about the issue. <coughs> yeah. So um, these sorts of centres generally try to advance animal welfare through research and associated publications, uh, through teaching, running courses, and through public engagement. I've put a question mark on that one because some of them, I think, uh, tend to try to stay too much on an ivory tower. They're afraid of engaging in potentially controversial public debates about issues. Um, uh, I'm setting up the one at Winchester that our approach is very different. We, I very much feel that uh, academic centres of animal welfare ought to um, offer the expertise that they have about animal welfare issues to wider society and actually take an active role in these public debates rather than staying uh, removed from that. So that we, we very much do want to uh, be part of those, those public debates about animal uh, issues. Why the University of Winchester? We're not the biggest university in the world. We've got about 6,000 students and I believe about 60 parking bays, which creates some issues. It's a very historic uh, town and there were no cars back when everything was invented. None of the houses in the centre have actually got parking bays. Lovely town. Cobblestone streets, uh, haunted tunnels under the, the city, all sorts of good things. But uh, no parking. And uh, anyway, so we're a small university, but we, we're pretty world-leading, we think, in terms of our values. The university is very committed to values such as compassion and concern for social justice. And if you think about it, animals are the individuals most consistently denied justice within society. And focusing on the advancement of their welfare is clearly an act of compassion. So actually really consistent with our university's values. Our strategic plan uh, currently states that Quote, we're driven by our pursuit of social justice and the common good where people, the planet and all living things are held in highest regard. So actually a really good fit with the university. Our vice-chancellor is really, really behind animal welfare. She's kind of borderline vegan, um, really doesn't, doesn't really know a great deal what animal welfare is necessarily, the senior management don't necessarily, in an ac- academic sense, in a detailed sense, but they know they want it. They're really uh, behind it, which is, which is fantastic. Um, what are we doing there at the university in, in our Centre for Animal Welfare that we're establishing? Obviously, we've got our various research activities. So uh, I have a range of research projects. My colleagues have a range of research projects. I certainly don't have time to talk about them all, but we've, we've got some interesting things going on. Um, a PhD student of mine in Portugal has, has, is a psychologist and has an interest in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children and has just done a big analysis of published animal research in this field um, to see how often that research ends up uh, producing anything useful for the understanding of or the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And we've just, that's just been accepted for publication, actually. It's just been published now in, in one of the, in text, one of the main journals in the field. So, so that's an example of, of one of the research projects that we have. Winchester is a very humanities-based university. It doesn't currently have a strong science base, although we're moving in that direction. There's lots of historians and criminologists and archaeologists around. And somehow, as a result of that, I've gotten drawn into a fascinating project involving Jack the Ripper. Um, this really all started. There, there is a link to animal welfare. Just be patient. It may not come, come quickly, but, but we'll get it. So this all started really, it was, it was yes, mine's fault, to be honest. Um, when, when it was a birthday for me many years ago, I got taken on a mystery event in London and I had to turn up at Whitechapel Station in East London at 7pm, I think it was, on a weeknight. And there were all these people milling around that seemed to be strangers, uh, but were there for a common purpose. We were all going on a Jack the Ripper tour. And so I went around on this tour, seeing all the spots where Jack murdered his victims and seeing all these grainy black and white photographs of the victims and things like that. And there was a theory that he must have been a surgeon because he was able to very quickly remove organs in darkened conditions and vanish from the scene uh, much more quickly than an unskilled person could possibly have done so. So a lot of people were thinking maybe Jack was actually a doctor at a nearby hospital in London at the time, one of the famous uh, hospitals in 19th century London. Maybe he was some kind of a surgeon. 
But I looked at these because I've you know, gone through the, the veterinary training. I thought, hang on, that's, that's not a surgical incision. That's in the wrong location. This, this, this cut's not right. And I started thinking, you know, that's more like a butchering cut. And I then found out that there was actually an, an abattoir 50 metres away from where the first victim was found. And actually at that time in London, there was a massive meat industry going on in East London and there were huge numbers of small abattoirs there. They didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have the transport networks that we had. Society hadn't decided they wanted the abattoirs out of London and in some rural location where they couldn't be seen and couldn't upset um, the vast majority of people who are happily consuming those animal products. So actually, back in the day, there were many, many small abattoirs all over London. There were people, uh, they often worked at night, there were people wandering around with knives and bloodstains all over the place. Um, and I looked at some other aspects of the case, the language that was used in, in the notes to the police at the time, uh, some other even more horrible things I'll be happy to discuss in the coffee break for anyone that wants to know about horrible things that I'm not going to inflict on everybody else. But I, I started to realise, hang on, maybe he wasn't a, a surgeon, Maybe he was a slaughterhouse worker, actually. And we have read from books uh, such as Slaughterhouse by Gail Eisnitz about the working conditions for slaughterhouse workers in the US and the production line speeds that they have to work under, the terrible conditions for themselves, uh, the relatively high rates of uh, domestic problems, domestic abuse that they have at home. And we know that people desensitise to... Uh, the workplace conditions that they're in in terms of things like violence. Um, and we know also that uh, many, many of the serial killers um, that have existed in modern times and had prior histories of animal abuse before uh, they graduated. It's called the graduation hypothesis onto human beings. So um, anyway, so one thing I'm looking at is the possibility that Jack the Ripper might have actually been a slaughterhouse worker. And this might have been another case of being involved in really what is animal abuse, um, which, which then translated into violence towards, towards people. Um, so that's just something I'm doing partly because I'm in a humanities-based university and there is this a lot of history and criminology and archaeology where I am, and partly because this one um, took me to, to on that tour and uh, I got to see these old pictures and got suspicious about some of the things I saw. So we're doing some interesting research things at the University of Winchester um, and I'm looking forward to publishing that paper and giving a lot more detailed talks about that because I think that would be an interesting one later. Hopefully uh, also highlight you know, the violent conditions that go on in slaughterhouses, certainly historically and also today as well, to be honest, too. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Uh, teaching, we're setting up courses. Um, if we can actually do it between now and September, we are, have been told that we have no choice. Uh, we, we will be running courses. Uh, senior management has told us we must set up courses on an entire undergraduate degree in animal welfare, which is a little bit more challenging, and also a master's course in animal welfare, which we can do, and that one's that one's actually well underway. We've also got, I've got a couple of PhD students, one is in, in Portugal, but we've got another one uh, at Winchester who is exploring the links between um, animal rights theory, as espoused by Tom Reagan and others, and utilitarianism, as espoused by Peter Singer and others. Um, as I said, we also want to very much be involved in public engagement uh, in social debates about animal use, uh, providing commentary, uh, not just limiting ourselves to academic media, but also very much public uh, media outlets, uh, consultancies. I mean, didn't charge any money, but I was asked to look at uh, some police video of a hunt in the, in the United Kingdom about a year ago, uh, in particular a deer in a forest that had some pretty nasty injuries. Um, which had to be killed, actually, um, by the hunt staff. And depending which side you believe, the deer had either been attacked by um, a bush, maybe a bit of fencing, 
or by the hunt dogs that were in the, in the area immediately beforehand. And I was able to look at the video and show that, hang on, those injuries weren't very consistent with being attacked by a bush or a bit of fencing, but actually they were extremely consistent with being attacked by some out-of-control hunting dogs. And if that was true, then um, clearly hunts can't control their dogs. They attack wildlife, which is illegal. They shouldn't be allowed on um, private lands or public lands. They pose a danger to public concern. All the uh, hunt uh, monitors uh, that were being tried for trespass were actually all acquitted. And, uh, and so that was a very interesting case. And obviously there are those conclusions about the um, safety of hunting as an activity in the United Kingdom. Um, regular seminar series, we'll be uh, running that as well once we get a little bit more set up. We have a, a launch event coming up soon with um, Heather Mills, actually, the, the wife of Paul McCartney, a former wife, um, the former wife, and uh, another actor as well, Peter Egan, will be coming to speak to us at Winchester, so we're really looking forward to that. We'll, um, obviously, we have a, a web page, blog, uh, we'll have a Facebook page. We had a major symposium on hunting at Winchester uh, in last November, which was very controversial because none of the hunters in the end agreed to, to turn up and take the opportunity to present their arguments about why hunting was a good thing. Um, we made enormous efforts and very courteous efforts to try to invite them. But the responses were most interesting. It was, well, we'll come, but only if we can have double the time, you know, other people, or only if you ban this other person or... Or, or, and then they published blogs saying hunting was supposed to be cancelled to try to make people think it was cancelled. It wasn't cancelled, went ahead. We filmed all the um, presentations. We had about we had uh, Jane Goodall, the primatologist, gave us uh, a, a presentation by video about the hunting of chimpanzees uh, for bushmeat in Africa uh, and about ten other speakers, one of who's a criminologist, and talked about the links between hunting and organised crime and the, the culture of hunting and the culture of the mafia and, and things like that. So a bunch of really interesting presentations. The whole lot was filmed, edited, it's now on the university's YouTube channel. So um, you know, we, we want to continue to do things like that. I do want to uh, highlight that we uh, have this master's course that I just mentioned that we're setting up. Uh, our web, website actually is, is winchester.ac.uk forward slash CRW. You can see there if down on the bottom right is actually linked to the master's course. I do want to um, say something about this. It's the, the main project I've been working on uh, for the last six months or so. It's going to be a Master of Science degree in Animal Welfare Science, Ethics and Law. Um, if you click on the various links, you get information about the, uh, the modules that will be covered in the course, um, the assessment modalities, uh, what the course will cover and so on. But essentially, it will be looking at uh, uh, the science of assessing the welfare state of an animal. So how do we look at an animal in a particular setting, be it a zoo, be it the wild, be it a companion animal, uh, and assess its welfare. You know, we look at physiological parameters, we look at behavioural characteristics, you can look at its environment, you know, enrichment opportunities, socialisation opportunities, uh, air quality, uh, the, the food, the husbandry, all those sorts of factors, and make an assessment of its welfare that is robust and that you can defend. Uh, then there's the animal ethics. Okay, given that that's the welfare state, what do we think about that ethically? What are the different animal ethics schools of thought? And what do they tell us about the ethical status of um, the use of that animal in that way? Now that we've had that ethical consideration, what is, how does that feed into the development of law and public policy? And that's the third pillar, law and public policy. So those are three sort of branches of the discipline as we know it really. Yes? I don't have a client and that does last to a certain point that we're getting the humanities and social science. Absolutely, yeah. Are you looking at actually developing one based on humanities, social science, as well as the scientific? I mean, absolutely. Uh, animal welfare science, ethics and law is an interdisciplinary field. It includes animal welfare science, the science of making a welfare assessment. It includes considerations of animal ethics, law and public policy. So it bridges the sciences and the humanities. And this course does all of that. Um, as I said, uh, the ability to come up with a scientifically rigorous assessment of the welfare state of animals in a diverse variety of settings. We'll be looking at all the various animal issues as well, such as animals used on farms, transportation, slaughter, laboratories, homes, zoos, various other uh, entertainment locations, free-ranging animals. For Are there any veterinarians here by any chance? No? Okay. 
it will also cover all of the theory that vets would need to become animal welfare specialists uh, in Europe or North America. The new specialisations have been set up in those regions. Won't cover the, the practical side of it. Vets still need to see about 120 cases and write reports about those, but it will cover all the theory that, that vets would need. Um, we also want to teach students to be able to design and conduct a research project, whether that be searching the academic literature and producing a detailed report about hunting or something else, or whether it be going out into the field and doing some kind of non-invasive uh, research uh, on, on animals in various settings. Um, we want to teach students how to communicate in an academic way by providing uh, written essays in traditional formats, uh, academic posters, PowerPoint presentations, but also, very importantly, uh, we think that a lot of people doing this sort of course would be interested probably in working for the animal advocacy organisations in various countries. And those organisations are obviously very interested in whatever uh, will help to get the message out to the wider public. So it's important that students will need to know how to actually write effective blogs, editorials, those more popular communication modalities, as well as the academic ones. So we're going to have those as well in the course. And a quick question? <coughs> Absolutely, and that's one of the things I'm going to mention. But uh, unusually, this, this program is available through distance learning. Um, and that's, that's, I think, uh, you know, so all of you could potentially all sign up to do it and, uh, and ask me tricky questions um, and, and when you're doing the course, which would be fabulous. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's available <coughs> through distance learning. There are other master's courses in animal welfare within the United Kingdom. Uh, there are 12 courses, and that's most of the ones in the world, to be honest. Um, about half of them focus on animal welfare and animal behaviour. The other half focus on animal welfare and conservation. Um, there are a very small number in other countries as well. Out of that long list, there's only other, one other course, which is a distance learning course, and that's a course in international animal welfare run by the University of Edinburgh. And the University of Edinburgh is fabulous. Uh, the University of Edinburgh is where this one got her Master's in Applied Animal Behaviour and Animal Welfare a number of years ago. Um, so they're a fantastic centre. Um, the downside is that they're, they're very expensive, unfortunately, to, to do their courses. Uh, we will be more affordable, uh, for sure. Uh, Winchester advantages. Um, I just want to emphasise that we um, really are a world leader in values-based education, so we will more critically scrutinise animal use issues than often does occur in, in other courses on animal welfare. There won't be the tacit acceptance of the use of animals in various ways that often is, is the case elsewhere. Um, I think, obviously, that will be very uh, helpful for people that want to go into animal advocacy careers uh, and work for the organisations. We'll probably include a bit of focus on animals that are less commonly covered in other courses. So we'll, we'll do animals in farms, transportation, slaughter, laboratories, zoos, all of that. But we'll also probably look at animals such as uh, invertebrates, uh, so-called pest animals, uh, primates, animals that are, are less commonly covered, uh, orcas, um, there's been a lot of publicity in the last few days about SeaWorld in the US um, deciding to phase out the use of uh, orcas in their uh, entertainment shows, um, which is fabulous. And funnily enough, I'm currently working with a couple of uh, US scientists who have uh, seen those orcas um, over really decades and observed changes in their behaviour before and after they entered the training program. Beforehand, they seem to engage in genuine friendships with people that visit on a regular basis, but once they go through the training program, their behaviour seems to change and they seem to become a lot more aggressive. Um, so we, we think it's obviously uh, very bad for orcas to be confined in that way and subjected to that training regime, and it does uh, result in those changes in behaviour, and, and uh, it's fabulous that, that SeaWorld is, is phasing those out. So, again, a, a less commonly considered species. Um, and as you've quite rightly pointed out, the distance learning thing is really important. There's only one other course uh, that is available through distance learning. We'll have part-time enrolment options too because a lot of people are likely to be working, so people can do ours uh, over two- or three-year part-time options. Uh, affordability. We won't have any differences uh, in pricing for international students, which is unusual. Most courses do charge a lot more for international students. We're not doing so because we figure our students are going to be based anywhere. There's not really a difference between UK students and students uh, in New Zealand or, or the South Pole or wherever they might be. Um, 100% distance if anyone wants to visit and have discussions with us fabulous that's great but it won't be a requirement to do so 
Um, affordability prices now uh, is going to be Australian dollars, one year full time, 9300 according to this morning's exchange rate. Um, if you do uh, two year part time, 50% of that, uh, the first year, 50% second year, and so on. Um, there are also shorter options. There's a postgrad diploma in animal welfare, science, ethics, and law where you do two thirds of it and you pay two thirds the fee. And then there's a postgrad certificate where you do one third of it and you pay one third the fee. So essentially 3,000, 6,000, or 9,000 something, depending on what you do. If anyone wants to uh, you know, raise any questions about any of that at a later date, then I can always be contacted via the website there as well. I'd be thrilled if anyone interested would consider taking a couple of handouts, which are up in the back corner there, um, so I've got less to carry back to the UK, and because I think it's actually a really exciting uh, course uh, that um, we're developing. It's, it's, I'm thrilled that after all these years um, in the animal advocacy world, i am somehow got myself into a position where I can actually help set up a course like this and help shape it and help make it you know, as welcoming as possible and useful as possible to people that want to go into animal advocacy careers. So, so that's actually a big project that I'm involved in at the moment. So um, I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk to you about that. So thanks very much, everybody, for, for listening to that. And I just want to close with, with this quote here, really, um, from Tenzin Gyatso, former Dalai Lama. It's not enough to be compassionate, you must act. And we see that again and again. This uh, photo of mine, uh, very badly focused, uh, was from the anti-Iraq war protests around about 10 years, more than 10 years ago in Amsterdam uh, where there were about 100,000 people filling uh, the square and outside the US Embassy there was a double line of shipping containers and behind that was uh, a platoon of, of Marines and a couple of dogs and one tank and in case any protesters wanted to try and try to get near the embassy. At one point, briefly, for 30 seconds, a bunch of people did jump up on the shipping containers with waving a United Nations flag, and all the photographers went berserk, including me, and I'm quite proud of that, proud of that shot, even though it is out of focus. But anyway, the message is the important thing. It's not enough to be compassionate, you must act. So thank you very much indeed, folks. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.